RX. I'm Kurt Anderson, and this is the Studio 360 Podcast. Studio 360 series New York Icons tells the stories behind works of art that took shape in the city, but which have shaped the lives of people everywhere. On this episode, we look at Gary Winogrand, the brilliant, prolific street photographer who worked from the 1950s into the 1980s. He photographed all kinds of things, but especially crowds of people in public spaces and beautiful women and zoo animals and their human visitors. During his career, Winogrand was celebrated for his idiosyncratic vision and style and got three Guggenheim fellowships. He also got plenty of criticism for photographs that seemed to a lot of people to objectify women. Winogrand died at age 56 in 1984, but his pictures still make waves. For the latest in our American Icon series, producer Richard Yeh looks at why Winogrand's photographs are so riveting by going inside his most controversial one. It's a photograph made in the Central Park Zoo. That's photographer Todd Papageorge. He's talking about a picture taken by Gary Winogrand. What we see in uh, filling the frame pretty much are a couple, an attractive blonde woman and uh, an equally attractive black man. And they're very well dressed. Each one is holding in her or his arms uh, a chimpanzee, dressed to the nines with little shoes on and so forth. The notion of a child is that idea that the chimpanzees are their children is provoked. And that's Susan Kismeric. She was a longtime photo curator at the Museum of Modern Art. There is a little boy in a 60s sort of proper Sunday. You know, he's got a little cap on and a little nice formal coat, and he's in profile, so he's very clearly seen in the picture once you get over the craziness of the chimpanzees. It forces the viewer to confront their feelings about race, their feelings about what happens if a white woman and a black man get together. The picture was taken in 1967, the year the Supreme Court made its landmark ruling on interracial marriage, Loving versus Virginia. The Lovings were married in 1958 outside of Virginia, here in the District of Columbia. But they were convicted under Virginia law, which forbids any white person and colored... Richard Loving, a white man, and his wife Mildred, a black woman, were sentenced to a year in prison for getting married. The legal term is miscegenation. And those who support such laws claim they are necessary in order to preserve the purity of the races. With its ruling, the Supreme Court struck down all remaining anti-miscegenation laws in the United States. Right away, the number of interracial marriages around the country began to rise. You look at the picture, and anyone with any ability to to create narratives is going to say, My God, is this what happens when the races mix? Is this what they produce? Chimpanzees. Papa George was actually with Winogrand at Central Park Zoo that day. The two had become friends the year before and would sometimes walk around the city together, shooting pictures on the streets. I was walking ahead of him and made a vertical picture of the four when the two chimpanzees were walking 
on the ground between them through the Zoom. And then I felt myself being shoved out of the way by somebody, which turned out to be Gary, who in his own kind of way was uniquely eager to make that picture. He says Winogrand was chasing a sort of artistic hunch. All I saw was a kind of strange, bizarre New York event. But he saw something. He saw the projected picture. And when it comes to photography, Papa George believes Winogrand was generally less concerned with the ultimate success of a picture than what Winogrand called the problem of making it. How do you make a photograph that's more interesting than, than, the, than what happened? That's really the problem. That's Gary Winogrand talking to photography students at Rice University in 1977. You know, when you photograph something beautiful, why, how do you make a photograph that's more beautiful than, what's, than what was photographed? That's really our problem in the end. He seemed to be saying that the distance between how a photograph looks and the actual things that the photograph describes is the space for the artist's intentions. In the end, the, the, the word dramatic has to apply. It always, it's always about that. How, is the photograph more dramatic than what was photographed? It has to be. Many of Winogrand's most memorable photos contain some dramatic juxtapositions in mundane situations, like the image of two girls and presumably their moms on a New York sidewalk. Everyone's arms are in the air, except the moms are looking down the street trying to fly down a taxi, and the girls are looking at each other playing a clapping game. It's very hard to sort of say this is a singular Gary Winogrand photo. That's Jeffrey Henson Scales, a photo editor at the New York Times. He met Winogrand in the early 1980s when they both lived and worked in Los Angeles. He used the wide-angle lens for a vision that was uniquely his at the time. One of the things that you often see is, you know, groups of people in these sort of seemingly choreographed situations where their gesture, their body language, their faces, their expressions are all different, but they add up to a complex whole kind of dance. Sometimes his subjects can look like they're dancing even when they're sitting down. Like his photo from the 1964 World's Fair of six young women in summer dresses sitting on a park bench with their legs crossed. The three in the middle seem to be sharing gossip. The two on the right are staring at something mysterious outside the edge of the photo. The one on the left is gaping at a man next to her. There's so much going on here, and as you keep looking around, you begin to see that the horizon is tilted, which adds even more dynamics to the image. His use of tilted horizon as a compositional element, he was one of the pioneers of using that sort of visual device effectively. They're just great pictures, so many great pictures. So many pictures, not all great. You know, he liked to photograph women. He's very interested in women. And you know, that was cause of some controversy. Through the 60s and the early 70s, as the feminist movement saw gains in areas like workplace protections and reproductive rights, Winogrand took a lot of photos of attractive, curvaceous women in public places, just going about their lives. They're often attractive. You can often see their breasts easily defined in the pictures. Again, MoMA curator Susan Kismerick. The pictures were interpreted as being part of the male gaze. The work was terribly criticized. It was absolutely ill-timing, thoughtless. 
Winogrand didn't do himself any favors when he collected these pictures in a book unapologetically titled Women Are Beautiful. Still, Kismeric has a much more forgiving take on his women photos than most critics at the time. See, I saw the pictures as more complicated, perhaps, than looking at breasts or looking at beautiful women. Women weren't wearing bras then in the 70s. They burned bras, if you remember. It really is about a kind of physical energy. I think he saw them as great, powerful, equal, if not better. I think he absolutely admired women. It's, he was an absolutely devoted family man. He was absolutely devoted to all three of his wives. She says that's why Winogrand started his career shooting commercial assignments for magazines. And he had to make a living. He got married when he was quite young to Adrienne Lubo. And, I mean, I think she was all of 17 years old. So he did commercial assignments. And the assignments were always the best when he was sort of given freedom. But commercial work didn't satisfy Winogrand. And soon, in his early 20s, he began shooting personal work on the street. I think he had specific ideas. The work on the street begins in the 50s. And Manhattan at that time, I mean, after the war, it was America's this sort of epitome of post-war prosperity. And Gary was well aware of that, especially being, as John Sharkowski described him, a hick from the Bronx. John Sharkowski was the legendary director of photography at MoMA who was perhaps the biggest booster of Winogrand's career. So Gary comes down from the Bronx, goes to Midtown Manhattan, where all of this is happening. By the time, I think around 1961 or 62 rolled around, he's trying to figure out how to make a living once he gives up the magazines, and he starts running workshops for photographers. Todd Papageorge was in those early workshops in Winogrand's Upper West Side apartment. He says the classes felt more like coffee clutches. In a way, it was puzzling because Gary would just ask question after question after question. And I was not so well acquainted with Greek philosophy at the time that I didn't recognize this as the Socratic method. Papa George, who later headed the graduate photo department at the Yale School of Art, says Winogrand's philosophical takes on the medium influenced him deeply. The whole purpose of it from his point of view was to clarify and begin to articulate his ideas about photography. That was the tremendous lesson that I learned from Gary. And then this whole working theory of photography that he was structuring, creating through these little aphorisms, he would say, what photograph isn't a still life? There are all these aphorisms from Gary which can be maddening, like I photograph to see what something will look like photographed. When he says famously, I photographed to find out what something will look like photographed, it's not something casual. That took a lot of very, very hard thinking on his part to put together. We'll continue with our story. But first, I want to remind you to follow us on Twitter, at Studio 360 Show. And now, back to the podcast. Before he met Winogrand, Papa George was taking photographs across Europe and imitating the style of Henri Cartier-Bresson. That, of course, is the French master who coined the term decisive moment. The idea that the artistry of photography was to know exactly when to click the camera to achieve the ideal composition of life and other forms that would not exist a moment later or sooner. I had this illusion that it was that somehow related to the famous phrase decisive moment. 
that you went out and you you tread the streets and waited and waited for things to sort of fall together in that miraculous moment. Beginning in the 1930s, Cartier-Bresson pioneered the genre that became known as street photography, in which the subjects typically don't pose for the camera and are not aware that they are being photographed. The result is a sort of candid realism that can be summed up by the word verité, the French word for truth. When you're photographing on the street, it's a very physical activity. You have to move through the crowd. You have to sort of be in a dance to try to remain anonymous. You don't want people to alter what they're doing because of your presence. That's the challenge. And Cartier-Bresson was able to remain a fly on the wall wherever he photographed, in part because the cameras got a lot smaller, especially the Leica rangefinder. It's so compact in size. The shutter and film winder were so quiet. It was often the only type of still cameras allowed on the movie set. And the Leica was so easy to shoot with, street photographers would use it like it's an extension of their arm. Gary would do this thing where he'd take a picture, and then he would look at the camera as though something was wrong with it. And it was this very clever gesture to help the people who he may have photographed who were thinking, wait, wait a second, what's going on here? Why is it? Oh, well, it didn't work anyway, so I'm going to keep walking. It's okay if he photographed me. Imagine you're going to scratch your nose. <laughs> Only in the hand that's doing the scratching, you have a Leica. And that's all they saw was somebody lift this thing up, look as if he was just touching his nose, and the camera was down again, and it was totally unclear whether, whether he had, in fact, made a picture. In most cases, he had. Underneath that disguise, as a clumsy camera guy, Winogrand was able to move among his subjects on the street and remain relatively inconspicuous. And while Cartier-Bresson preferred the 50mm lens, which had a similar perspective to the human eye, Winogrand always shot with a wide-angle lens, which gave his images a more expansive and dynamic look. With Gary, I saw the possibilities for pictures were much, much more present and shifting and overwhelming than I had ever thought. The film was the cheapest thing you, you had to use. The camera cost a lot more than the film. The film was the cheapest thing you had to use. Before digital cameras, you could only take 36 pictures on a roll, and then you had to rewind the film, process it, make contact sheets and print proofs before you knew what you really shot. Winogrand made more than a million pictures in his life. He's been called the first digital photographer because he was so prolific. And that's what Jeffrey Henson Scales remembers about meeting Winogrand in the early 80s. I met him at the farmer's market in Los Angeles. And I had been working as a freelance photographer. We talked for a long time, and you know, one of the things he told me is that the trouble with photographers he felt in L.A. is many of them were waiting for someone to give them an assignment, and they never really would realize their own potential because they were always waiting for an assignment, which for me was pretty life-altering because then I started shooting every day. I really don't think you anybody, you really learn from teachers, you learn from work. And you have to be your own toughest critic. And you only learn that from work, from seeing work. Again, Gary Winogrand at Rice University. In terms of my experience, Evans's work was radically different. You know, for my money, he's probably the most transparent. He's talking about Walter Evans, who documented the plight of poor farmers in the Dust Bowl and the effects of the Great Depression for the Farm Security Administration. 
Evans, more than anybody else, gets out of the way. He's as close to being transparent, to being, to not existing. But from where I said, that's the way I have to express it. I would like not to exist. I would like not to exist. That's another one of Winogrand's famous aphorisms. The desire to be totally inconspicuous. It's the essence of his street photography. And what better place to disappear than New York City? New York is really great. That's David D. Delgado, a photojournalist from the Bronx. We all have different quirks. It may be the way you walk. It may be the way you look at things. It may be what you're wearing. It may be just the way the light is hitting you at the moment. And he's always shooting. For work assignments, he uses modern digital cameras with big zoom lenses. But in his free time, he likes to walk around with his little lighter rangefinder. You go with a prime, which is, you know, a fixed focal lens. And yeah, you zoom with your feet. Sometimes I'll see an image half a block away and I'm running through foot traffic because I see the, the movement is fleeting and I need to grab that image. He's talking about the so-called zone focusing method, which Winogrand was known for. With a prime lens, meaning not a zoom lens, but one with a fixed photo length, street photographers can preset their lens to focus on a desired range, say 6 to 12 feet. And as long as they stay within that zone with their subjects, they can take photos quickly without the need to refocus every time. You move around, this is a ballet of sorts where you're you know, moving around people to get a photo, you're dodging and you're moving. Yeah, I could probably grab it with a zoom lens, but a zoom lens is kind of cheating, you know. Um, you, as a street photographer, you need to get in there, you need to get dirty and put in the work. That idea that street photographers need to get up close and personal with their subjects may be the enduring legacy of Winogrand. Curator Susan Kismarek. What Gary does for street photography he may be the last person to have really pushed what the 35-millimeter camera can describe. The pictures have so much information, so much detail, so much energy. There's so much action. There's so many things to think about in each photograph. And I think Gary, perhaps more than anyone, pushed that. I mean, he changes from a 35 to a 28-millimeter lens. And he did it specifically for the, that reason, to see how far it could be pushed. But to Winogrand, more information doesn't mean more answers. Let's face it, I mean, what do you know from a photograph? They don't have narrative ability. They're talking about a cow jumping. You know if it's going up or down even and from the picture. So why should you know where the hell it was taken? And that's the trouble with the chimpanzee photo from the zoo and why it's become such a controversial image in Winogrand's body of work. We don't really know anything about the couple. Papa George says they look like models for a fashion shoot, but doesn't remember anything else about the event. The interesting thing is, I mean, there's a seeming paradox functioning. They're not ambiguous. There's nothing ambiguous about any of these photographs, yet you don't know what's happening. In the picture, the woman's blonde hair is neatly tied up in a kerchief. The chimpanzees' arms cling onto their human guardians. The sunlight perfectly illuminates the group, and everyone looks very serious, like they care about one another. The picture is full of details, but it doesn't have much action or context. He refuses to back away from the actuality of things, and the actuality, the liminal moments, the moments between the raising of the flag at Emojima, 
as wonderful and symbolic as that picture is, the liminal moments is how we spend 99% of our lives. There's not a lot of high drama. So if you're interested in life, you can make pictures that are highly symbolic and fairly obvious and easily accessible, or you can try to describe something that is complicated, intricate. And I think Gary was successful in doing that by being alert to all of, all of it out there. Wendell Grant left New York in 1971, first moving to Chicago, then to Austin, and finally to L.A. He continued to photograph until his death in 1984, shortly after being diagnosed with cancer. To many of his friends and critics, his work was not the same after he left New York. Like the Greek myth, Antaeus, who lost his strength when he was lifted up from the earth, his strength came from the earth. I think Gary's total brilliance as an artist came from the, the bedrock of this island that we're on, Manhattan. You know, New York City is urban. Chicago can be urban. You know, Los Angeles doesn't happen that way. Talk about not existing. You know, like, when I'm in New York, I'm anonymous. I could, be, I could go to that goddamn street, the same street corner, every day for 10 years, and I'd never see this. I wouldn't see the same people twice most of the time, you know, really. WNYC's Richard Yeh produced our story, and it was mixed by Wayne Schulmeister. Our New York Icon series is made possible by a grant from the Booth Ferris Foundation. To hear more of these stories, head over to studio360.org. Thanks for listening, and you can subscribe to Studio 360 wherever you get podcasts.